If you have your Bibles, take them out and turn to Haggai chapter 2. Remember, it's the third to last book of the Old Testament between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And also, if you don't have the message outline, right up the center doors here, right at that desk there, you can pick up a message outline. Today, we're going to finish the study of the book of Haggai. We're going to finish our series, Consider Your Ways. And ever since I've been ministering, ever since I've been serving Jesus, the one thing in my mind is to see spiritual revival. My heart and passion, really heart and passions, since I've been saved, to see people come to know Jesus and then grow in the Word of God, to really help them to, to have that firm foundation with Jesus in the Word of God so they understand who He is and how to follow Him. And hopefully you have that too, that passion, to want to see people come to know Jesus and learn the Word of God. When we look at our country, we look around and we say, why, our country really needs to turn around. We probably all could say, yes, it needs to turn around. But yet when we read the Old Testament, we find out that it begins with the people of God. It doesn't begin with just the world out there, with the people of God. So it, it's with our church. It's our church where we need to be awakened. It's the church that needs to turn around, is what the Bible's really telling us when we see this. And, the, and it reminds me of the old song that it says, that it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. That each one of us have to do that. And as we look at the book of Haggai, as we look at this uh, last prophecy that God has given Haggai, the prophet, uh, deliver the children of Israel. And we, we've already looked at some previous prophecies that God had given Haggai to give to Israel. You remember the first one? Where he told them, it says they are starting to rebuild the foundation of the temple, and God is using Zerubbabel. It's going to be the governor of Judah and, and Joshua, the high priest. They were to take them back to the, to the Jerusalem, to the promised land, and they were going to lead them to rebuild the temple, and they start the building process. But then they get discouraged because of the Samaritans. Because of what the Samaritans were doing and said to the Persians. And, and so they get discouraged, and they stopped building. They stopped. And for 16 years, they walked by that temple and did nothing. And weeds began to grow up, and trees maybe by 16 years began to grow up, and they didn't do anything. They had misplaced priorities is what happened. And after 16 years, God finally said to Haggai the prophet, he says, and he says these words to him. He says, I want you to go up to the top of the mountains. I want you to cut down the trees. I want you to come back down, and I want you to rebuild that temple. I want you to finish it. I want you to get it done. And the people responded to that message. They responded. And, and later on, in another prophecy, God had to say to Haggai, he says, now you need to remind the people to be obedient. Remind them to be obedient because some of these people working on the temple, and they're remembering back the way it used to be as they're working on the temple. And maybe the older people reminded the younger people, oh, you should have seen Solomon's temple. It was glorious. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And this temple is only, it's a lot smaller version. It's downsizing, and we don't have the materials. We don't have the resources, and we don't have the money. And they were complaining. So the people got discouraged. They got discouraged of what they were building compared to what it what used to be. And sometimes when you look back at the glory days, it could put us in neutral in the present, right? Remember, God said to them with encouragement. We talked about it last week. He told them to be strong, to get to work. And do not be afraid because the presence of God is with you. God is saying, I am with you. And we talked about that last week. This week in our passage, beginning in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to learn three things about holiness that he's going to talk about here. Uh, it's asked the question, how does a person become holy? And ask another question, how does a person become unholy? And then he's going to talk about the nature of spiritual revival and these are all wonderful questions for us to look at this morning. And our title today is Revival Comes When You Submit to God's Word. And if you have your outline, I want to give you three ways you can submit to God's Word. And that puts us in a position to have 
uh, spiritual revival in our own lives. And the first one, repent of spiritual apathy and disobedience. Repent of spiritual apathy and disobedience. We're going to begin reading in Haggai chapter 2. Hopefully you have that. Where God, give, again, gives us a time-dated prophecy. In this book, he constantly does that. He tells his exact date. It's three months after the date they began to build. Three months after that date, God speaks to him again. And it says in verse 10, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. So the priests were the ones that should know. So God is saying, ask the priest. They're going to ask two legal questions of the law, what they're going to ask. So the first one is verse 12. If a person carries consecrated, what that means, consecrated means, or holy, meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated or does it become holy? The priest answered, no, it, it does not. Not according to law, not according to Leviticus chapter 6. It says no. Now the second question. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Verse 14. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they, are, whatever they offer, there is defiled. So he's asking two simple questions, pretty simple questions. And the first one, he says, if you have meat that is holy, in other words, it's been, it's been consecrated or dedicated for worship, and maybe it's wrapped in a wrapper in the hem of a garment. He says, if you have this meat, and he says, that's holy piece of meat or holy piece of bread that is consecrated, dedicated for worship, and it touches anything else. He says, that which it touches, does it become clean? And the priest said, no, it does not. What if we reverse that? That's the second question. What if we reverse that? And he says, what if you take something that has been defiled, and, and like a person who's touched a dead body, and according to the Old Testament, that person would be unclean. What if that which is unclean touches that which is clean? Does the clean make it unclean? And they said, the priest says, yes, yes. So what he's saying here, if you take that which is unclean, this gets kind of confusing. If you take that which is unclean, touch something that is clean, he says, the question is, will the clean make the unclean clean? You follow me? Okay, you got that. And the answer is, no, it will not. It will not. And, and, and it still does not clean is what he's telling him. It still will not make it clean. So it comes to the bigger question we have to ask ourselves, then what makes a person clean? Then how does a person become clean? That has to be the next question. How does a believer become clean, one who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and now they have sin in their lives? That's the question. That's going to be the real question for the people of God who are serving here. How do they become clean? They're to repent of their sins and confess their sins. The only way to become clean is by God's grace. It's God's willingness to forgive us. It's only by His grace that we repent of our sins for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. What about people who've never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior? What about them? How do they become clean? There's not enough soap or soap that is strong enough to wash away the stain of sin in someone's life, right? The only way a person can become clean is through the holiness and righteousness of Jesus. It's the only way. They can only get, become clean through Jesus by coming through the cross, the bloodstained cross of Jesus Christ, accepting him as their Savior. He makes the unclean clean for us today. We have to understand that. For a person who doesn't know Jesus, the, the way they become clean, Jesus makes them clean. For a person who does know Jesus, yet their lives are stained and tainted with the sins of this world. It's through repentance. 
It's through repentance. We must repent of our sins, repent of our spiritual apathy, repent of our bad habits, repent of those things that we've done. We have to repent and turn toward God. And repentance is, if I'm sinning, God is here. Every time I sin, I turn my back on God and I sin. Repent is change one's mind. I turn 180 degrees. I repent of that, turn toward God and confess my sin. That's what we're to do. Confess our sin to God. Repent of that. Well, why is God sharing this? You kind of say, well, I kind of know, but why is he sharing this? Let me give you an extreme illustration, then let me give you some practical applications. There was an article that I read many years ago about a man who went to church, was really involved in church, and his wife had been murdered. And shortly afterwards, this husband, this man, was arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. And while he was in jail and he was waiting trial, uh, he said, all that I've done for Jesus, I thought that he would protect me. All that I've done for Jesus. So he had given lots of money to Christian organizations and into Christian church. And he says, all that I've done for Jesus, I thought he would protect me. He thought the righteous deeds that he was doing, all those things he was doing, that would somehow clean up his unholy life. And it doesn't work that way, right? We know that, right? It doesn't work that way. But some people believe it does. What are the practical applications for us? Well, first of all, let's understand what was going on at that time. At that time, the children of Israel were hoping that they were building on this holy temple. And this was a holy place, they thought to themselves. And I'm building in this holy temple. And as I'm building on this holy temple, that will sanctify their dirty lives. That I was going to get sanctified by doing this work for God, by working in this holy temple, that I would sanctify their lives. And God is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. That's not how it happens. And he says, ask the priests. You can't do your ceremonial things and expect those ceremonial claims to clean up your life. It doesn't work that way. It, it, it would only, matter of fact, it only becomes defiled, is what he's saying. It only becomes defiled when you do that. Well, how do you apply this practically for us? For those of us who come to church, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, probably most of us in this room who said, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, you have to ask the question for, for yourself, why do I come to church? And we should come. Why do I give my offering tithe? And we should give that. Why do I serve? And we should do that. We, should, we have to ask ourselves, why am I doing these things? And if I'm doing these things as somehow jumping through these religious hoops, and I'm doing this as somehow it's going to satisfy God and somehow make my unholy life holy, God is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way for this. That will not make you holy and right with God. Do you understand that? By doing good things, it doesn't make us holy and right with God. Some people believe that. Some people believe, well, I've messed up. I've ever been walking right with God, so I know what I'll do. I'll go to church, I'll give, and I'll serve, and that'll make everything right. No, it doesn't work that way. We can't serve and make our life right. We can't make up for our sin by serving, by going to church, by giving money. It doesn't work that way. We can only be holy. This is for believers in Jesus. We can only be holy and get ourselves right with God through repentance, through repentance. We come and we repent of our spiritual apathy and we confess our sins. We repent of the things that we've been doing, the bad habits, or those sins that have been in our lives for a very long time, and we've accepted those. We repent of those, and we turn back to God, and we confess our sins. That's the only way that our walk is right with God. Not through serving. Some people think, well, I just serve, and that's, that's our— No! God says, your service? No. I mean, read the book of Malachi. In the book, in the book of Malachi, he talks about that. It's not through serving. It's through repentance. So the word of God through the prophet Haggai, where God is saying to me and to all of us, he says to look at your lives. 
and maybe examine your own lives. Says, what is stopping the spiritual revival that God wants in your life? Is it our attitudes? Is it our practices? Is it a bad habit that we have in our own lives? Is it something that we should be doing that we're not doing? Or is it something that we're not doing that we should be doing? We need to ask ourselves, what is it, God, that it's in our lives? What is God saying in our lives? Where are we in violation of his word? Whatever it is, we need to stop and repent of it and turn toward God and confess it and get it right and stop it right there. The first plan of, of revival starts from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And what that is saying to us, if we humble ourselves, we pray and confess our sins. That's where it starts right there for each one of us. starts right there. And that's the challenge for all of us. The challenge for every one of us. We want to see spiritual revival. If we want to see our country turned around. It begins in our own heart. It begins on our one-on-one with God. Let's make sure our walk with right, is right with God. Not looking at everybody else's, how theirs is, but your own walk is right with God. And just because you're a believer, say, well, I'm a believer, I'm all right. No, is there sin in your life? And that's what these people were dealing with. They were the people of God. They were the 50,000 that went back there to build. They were the people of God. God says, no, you're not right with me. You're not right with me. Repent. Repent of the things you're doing. The second thing we need to do to submit to God's word in our quest for spiritual revival is number two is to resolve. Resolve to embrace God's promise for blessing. We need to resolve. We need to embrace his, his blessings. Let's read verse 15 through 19. It says, now give careful thought. Then we have that again, or consider your ways. Three times he says that in this passage right here we're going to read. Give careful thought to this, to, to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone who came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. What's very interesting here is we learn from this passage, as repeated earlier in, in the verses in Haggai, that this sovereign God loves his people. I mean, you see his love poured all out through the book of Haggai. That these 50,000 people that he took out of captivity, that he took out of exile, he loves them so much. He loves them so much, and he wants to get their attention. And he's trying everything he can to get their attention. And God tried to get their attention through, their, through the harvest. That's what he's trying to do. Get their attention through the harvest. Remember in those early verses in the book of Haggai, where God told him, he says, that, that you planted much, but you harvested little. And he tells him, he says, you worked so hard, but there's like holes in your pockets or holes in your purse or your wallet. And he just pours out. God said, I blew on it. And it just goes away. You wonder where all your money goes. He says, you eat, but you're never satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You, you put on clothes, but you're still cold. And they said, it doesn't make sense to us. They were saying, we don't understand why these things are happening. They didn't get it. They didn't connect the dots. They weren't connecting the dots. And God was trying to get their attention through the harvest to let them understand they're not walking in the ways of God. And God will bring things in people's lives. And maybe he's doing it to yours. And you wonder, why is all these things happening to me? Why is this happening? Maybe we need to stop and ask God the question, God, are you trying to get my attention? Is there something I'm doing that's not walking 
right with you? Are you trying to get my attention? Is that's what's going on in my life? We need to ask God that question. The same as them. They weren't connecting the dots, what was going on in their lives. And God was trying to get their attention to draw them back to himself, to repentance, and they didn't see it. And you ask, you ask yourself, well, why would a sovereign God do that, right? You ever ask, why would God do that? Isn't God, the role of God is to make me happy? Some of you smile. Is that God's role to make me happy? I mean, that's what many people believe. They think, God, you're just there, sovereign God, you're just there, your role is to make me happy. And many people use that, that God wants me to be happy to justify unholy actions and living. And they're justified. God wants me to be happy, and because he wants me to be happy, he's all right if I do this disobedience, if I disobey God's word. Because ultimately, the ultimate goal is God wants me to be happy. See, God's role in life as a sovereign God is not that we would be happy. Hopefully you understand that. God's role is that we would be holy. That's what God wants. And when we are holy, then we will be happy, the Bible tells us. Jesus talked about that in the the Gospel of John. He says, obey my commandments and you will have joy in your heart. We will have joy. A joy that will transcend temporal happiness for, for, that could be the result of sinful activity, a temporal happiness that we have. But Jesus says, no, I promise you, I will give you a joy that will last, that will last forever. Not temporal happiness from sin. He says something different. He says here, repent of your sins and embrace the promises of God. That's what he's telling them. Hey, guys, say, embrace the promises of God. What the sovereign hand of God didn't do in the lives, the prophets did. Now, let me explain that. They couldn't figure it out. They didn't understand what was going on. And they're thinking, now that you mentioned it, uh, the barns are not as full as we thought they would be. Uh, We don't have as much wine as we thought we would have. And and we don't have as much wheat as we sold. We promised this much wheat we were going to sell, but we don't have that much. We didn't harvest that much. And the prophets, what they came behind, they they connected the dots. God hit the harvest, and the prophets came, and the people didn't understand what was going on. So the prophets come, and they connect the dots, and the prophets would say, like, hey, a guy came behind him and said, the reason your barns are empty, because you're not walking right with the sovereign God. You're not right with God. That's why your barns are empty. And finally, they would get it. Oh, I understand. They were connecting the dots. And that's many times what God would do with the prophets. They would connect the dots. And what he's saying, you need to embrace repentance. You need to embrace God's blessings is what you need to do. And God told him, he says, from this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you. And and the work in in your hearts and your lives, he says, I will bless you what you're going to do. And with obedience to the word and embracing the blessing, what a promise that God gave them. A tremendous promise. And see, God has not promised you and I happiness. God has not promised us a bigger house. He's not promised us a faster car. He's not promised us a life free of stress. He's not promised any of that. What God has promised us is eternal salvation. What God has promised us is his presence in our lives. And what God has promised us is his blessing in our lives. That's what he's promised us. And it's important for us to understand that. And many times when we hear about blessings, we automatically go, oh, material blessings. It could be that. But it usually, when it talks about blessing, it talks about spiritual blessings. God's blessed us spiritually. And whatever you do for God in his kingdom, he's going to bless you to accomplish that. But God could bless us materially. God can do that. He's able to do that. But we need to remember, God, God's promised to provide all of our needs, not all of our wants. And so he, he helps us to accomplish what he wants us to do. I want to share one more thought, continuation of this third, uh, this third piece of revival. And this third part that he doesn't address Joshua, 
He doesn't address the people of Israel, but he zeroes in on Zerubbabel. He really focuses on him. Zerubbabel is now the governor of all of Jerusalem. And notice what he says the third way here. In number three, he says, receive God's calling to be a blessing to the world. Receive God's calling to be a blessing in the world. Let's read verse 20 and 21. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. Again, God's going to shake like a piggy pig. He's going to shake them. But let's stop for a moment. He tells Zerubbabel, keep in mind that he's the Jewish governor of, of Judah, 50,000 people. By now, they've probably grown. That was 50,000 18 years ago. By now, they've grown larger, bigger population, but it's still a small piece of the population of the Persian Gulf, right? A little a small piece of the country right there, the Persian Gulf, the Persian Empire, rather, not the Gulf, Persian Empire. And Zerubbabel had to wake up many days and thinking to himself, what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing this? I got this little piece of land. I got this little piece, and I have to build this building, and I can't even get that right. And most of the nations around here, they don't like me. They're not in favor of what I'm doing. And then God stops, and he speaks to Zerubbabel, and something says something to him that he never is going to forget what he says to him. Notice what he says in verses 21 through 23. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Jatiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I've chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. God says to Zerubbabel, he says, I'm going to shake the nations and I'm going to rise you up. That's what he's promised him. I'm going to shake the nations and I'm going to rise you up. Hold on, Zerubbabel. I'm going to do something great. When you look at our country and you look and say, man, at this might and its power, you got to also include Russia and China and the European nations. And the leaders of those nations have so much power in the world, right? Today, just it's obvious. But the reminder we have from Scripture is this, that it is a God that is a sovereign God. And he takes kings and sets up kings and he takes kings down is what the Bible's telling us. That's what that's saying. He sets kings up and I tear them down, whatever he wants to do. Whatever happens with the leaders of those powerful countries, whatever happens, each one of those men and women have to submit to a sovereign God. Do you understand? Each one has to submit to a sovereign God who has the nations of the world as dust and the balance of his scales, according to Isaiah chapter 40, where every one of those nations are just like a drop in the bucket to God. Think of a big bucket of water. And God says, each one of those nations, just one little drop of water in that bucket. That's all they are. That's all they are to God. I can rise them up and I can tear them down. That's the power that God has. And when Zerubbabel hears this, this has to be wonderful news to him. This Zerubbabel, he's hearing this, that I'm going to raise you up what God is saying. And listen to the words that he uses in verse 23. He says, I will take you. You talk about selection. Of all other people, God says, I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, I'm picking you out of everyone else. I'm going to take you. And he calls Zerubbabel and says, you're my servant. And then he says something to him. He goes on and says, I'm going to make you like my signet ring. Now that would be very significant, especially to Zerubbabel, because his grandfather, Jehoiakim, was the last king of Judah, was the last king of Judah before the Babylonians came in 66 years earlier and took them all into captivity. And his signet ring, Jehoiakim's, uh, that represented kind of ownership and authority was ripped from his hand, was taken right off his hand. And now God has seen this Zerubbabel. I have chosen you 
like a signet ring. He says, I have plans for you, and my plans for you will prevail. Nothing will stop these plans that I have for you, Zerubbabel. That's what he's telling him. When you read the book of Matthew, and you go into the first chapter of Matthew, and, and there's a man's name, when you look at those three groups of 14, and it's talking about the Jesus lineage, when you look at that, there's a man by the name of Zerubbabel there on that list right there. And God says, I've chosen you. I've chosen you to be a blessing, a blessing to others. And from you and your lineage will come Jesus, and he will bless the entire world. He will be a blessing to the entire world. And when you look at that, what God was saying, that's what he was saying to him. You're going to be a blessing to the entire world. Now I've set you up, Zerubbabel. It's going to go through you. Your line is going through you right now. I'm setting it up. I'm letting you know that. You think that was a good day for Zerubbabel? Think when he heard this, it was like, wow. It was a day that you write in your journal. Says, I'm never going to get this day. It was a great day for him. God is saying it's not over for you. It's just begun. Through you, Zerubbabel, the world's going to be blessed. Just think if God said that to you, through you, the world's going to be blessed through you. Even the promises go all the way back. Do you realize this? All the way to Genesis chapter 3. It goes all the way back there. Where God is going to bless the world through an offspring of a woman. Now that offspring is going to come through Zerubbabel. Read about that Jesus is born to Mary. And he says that. It's going to come through Zerubbabel. And he goes on and says, I've chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. I've chosen you. And the reason I point all this out is for, for us to understand. Because everything but the signet ring, what he's saying there. Where he says, I've chosen you. You are my servant. That you and I are called to be God's servants. And God takes us and he chooses us. Do you, do you understand that? Like he chose the Bowl. He chooses us. Why? You ever thought about that? Why God chose you for salvation? You ever thought about that? That, that he chose you to be a part of his family. And he chose you. It's a wonderful thing to be chosen by God, right? That God opens up your heart and your mind and he, and he pours his love toward you through Jesus. You come to understand who Jesus is. Not by chance. God chose you, the Bible says. So you can understand and open up your eyes. Nobody can understand this without God opening up your eyes and understand who Jesus is. You're not smarter than everyone else. You see it. Nobody else. It's God who does it. And you get to see who he is, and you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And it's not the end when you accept, but it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of your life. It's really started at that time where you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. It changed everything. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And what God is saying, God, that we were saved, chosen by God to be a blessing to others. Think about that. That we were saved, chosen by God to be a blessing to others. I want that in my life. I want to be a blessing to others, don't you? Don't you want to be a blessing to others? That, that wherever you go, you're a blessing. Man, they are such a blessing. That's what God says. I've called you to be a blessing to others. Same thing he said is Zerubbabel. I've called you to be a blessing to others. That's what he's saying to us. I've called you to be a blessing to others wherever you go. There's all kinds of ways we can bless others today, right? I, I kind of wrote a list down. We can go to someone's house so we can fix something. We can bless them by fixing with our abilities to do those kind of things. We can pick someone up and give them a ride. They need a ride. We can bless them with giving them a ride. We can make a meal for someone and bless them with the meal. We, we can cut someone's grass, do shovel their snow, whatever. We can bless them. We can call them up and see how they're doing and bless them. We can pray for them. We can bring the good news to them and share about Jesus with them and bless them. There's so many ways that we were called to be a blessing to others. But that's what God says. I've called you to be a blessing to others. 
that you've been called to be a blessing in your community, in your neighborhood, to others. That when people think of you, they should, boy, they're such a blessing. You've been called to be a blessing to others in your workplace. You've been called to be a blessing to others in your family. In your social circle, God has placed you exactly where he wants you to be, to be a blessing to others. Do you realize that? He's placed you right there. And he says, I've called you to bless others with your life, that wherever they come, you're a blessing to others. That's what he's saying to us. That's what he was saying to them, to Zerubbabel. And that's what God is saying to his servants, you and I, who know Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're called to be a blessing, to take the good news of Jesus and God's grace and mercy to others and offer it and be a blessing. Let me summarize this a little bit. Because we want to see revival, right? Hopefully you see, but I want to see revival. I want to see it in my own heart. I want to see it in the church. I want to see it in our country. But it begins looking on the inside of each and every one of us. That we repent of our sins. That we embrace God's blessings. That we can become a blessing to others. We have to first embrace God's blessings so we can be a blessing to others. And that's our challenge. Not from me. These aren't my words. These are God's words through the prophet Haggai whose words transcends all time and, and that speaks to our life situation, our life circumstances today because it transcends time, God's word does. And may I encourage you, if there's anything in your life where, where it's displeasing to God, will you confess it? Will you repent of it? Turn from it and confess that sin to God and say, God, I, I've sinned, whatever it is, sins, habits, whatever it might be that you might confess that God promises if we confess our sins that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise, not, oh, I might. God says he will if we come and we confess it. That's what believers are to do. When we sin, we go and we repent of it. We confess it to God is what we do. That's what we do. And second, let's be committed to bless others, to be a blessing to others. Let's be committed to that, to be blessing others. How, would, how could that change the world if everyone has decided today that we'd be a conduit of God's love? To others. Just think if we would all do that, how our community probably would change, how our state would change, how our country would change if all of us were committed to be a conduit of God's love to bless others with our lives and everything that we were doing. I want to be a blessing. Just think how it would impact those around you if you decided to be committed and be a conduit of God's love. I'm just going to bless others. Let's, let's, let's rise to the challenge. Let's ask God, say, God, I want to repent of my sins. I want to embrace your blessings so that I might be a blessing to others. And that's what God was given to Zerubbabel. That's what he's given to us. God wants us to be a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that you have. That, Lord, none of us come to Jesus on our own. There's none here. There's not one righteous, not one. None of us can just come to Jesus on our own. It's only by you drawing us to you. It's only by you drawing us toward you through your son, Jesus Christ, by your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your love, that we understand who you are. And so today, Lord, we're coming in as we take communion, we're acknowledging that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the grave, and that Jesus Christ is alive. And we're declaring that as we take communion this morning, that we believe in Jesus. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We believe in the, the, that Jesus died for our sins upon the cross. We believe all that. We're coming and recognizing that. And so, Lord, we want to come and remember you on all that you went through for us, giving your body and shedding your blood. 
the torture they put you through, what that cross meant to be crucified. We want to remember you. Lord, we also ask, Lord, that if we have any sins in our life that we might confess it this morning and get ourselves right. We either might repent and confess. And Lord, that we might remember the blessing that you sent. That you sent your son. And what a blessing. Beyond imagination, what he's done for us. Our minds can't comprehend what the death on that cross actually means. We know it means forgiveness of sins, eternity with you, hope, all those kind of things. But Lord, we're not going to begin to grasp till we get to heaven with you to understand the fullness of Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, what that really means. And so, Lord, we're here, invited to your table by you to commune with you today and remembering you. Lord, we worship you. We praise you. And we come thanking you with bended knee and humbled hearts. That's all because of you, Jesus. All because of you that we have salvation. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.